God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that they may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on earth. God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. When Chris and I agreed that I would preach on MLK weekend, I did think about just reading one of MLK's sermons. And I'm still not sure that wouldn't have been a better idea. Um, But I'm going to do my best to share some things that I learned through MLK. And I still recommend that you go and read one of his sermons um, this weekend if you can find time to do that. There's plenty of them online. Um, So some of you may already know that I'm a kid from Akron, Ohio. And I know there's a few other Ohio people in the in the room, yeah? Oh, cool, okay, awesome. Okay, I think we're missing a few <laughs> I.O. We're missing a few Ohioans. So I was born in Akron, which is the home of LeBron James. He's not that much older than me. I never met him, but I had a couple friends that went to his high school. Um, it's also the home of the most presidents and the most astronauts, which leads to great memes like this one, which is 25 astronauts were born in Ohio. What is it about your state that makes people want to flee the Earth? So I'll just say that Ohio is a great place to be from. Um, so I, I've been in Durham for 12 years now, so I think that I'm qualified to be a Durhamite by now. Um, but I say all this to say um, that about four years ago, my parents followed me from Ohio and moved to Raleigh. And that was actually, um, my life kind of fell apart after that. Um, and the reason is because their marriage was really toxic. And when I lost that 500-mile like, geographical boundary, I had to start learning how to establish other kinds of boundaries. Um, and they kind of pulled me into the vortex of that toxicity. And so a few friends, including one that's here today, told me that I should probably start going to therapy since they weren't. And I did. And then my therapist told me, read Townsend and Cloud's book, Boundaries. Has anyone read that book? A couple people. It's really good. Um, and it was kind of mind-blowing for me because there had been nothing in the way that I'd been raised in my family or in my church context before that had told me that personal boundaries were an important thing for healthy relationships. And it became apparent to me um, that if I was going to be whole, that I was going to have to learn how to establish relational boundaries. Um, but I didn't have... Um, I didn't have anything in the way I'd been taught to read the Bible or to think about my faith that told me that was okay. And so that was really challenging for me, and certain parts of scripture were especially challenging, uh, such as parts of Philippians. So I'm going to ask Calvin to come up and read a section of Philippians that we've talked about many times uh, here at Oak Church. So thanks, Calvin. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. 
This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Here we go. Good? Okay. The question for me became, how could I have the mind of Christ and also set boundaries in my relationships? Was it right for me to resist my parents' unhealthy intrusions on my life? Was I being selfish by not always um, giving in to my parents' needs or requests or demands um, on, my, on myself? And it felt like I was putting my needs ahead of theirs. Um, I'm still wrestling with those questions at times, and I'd love to hear from you how you wrestle with those things. Um, but a heavy, a heavy focus on atonement theory over other ways of understanding how um, God works out our salvation for us can steer us towards seeing Christ's death on the cross as self-sacrifice for the sake of self-sacrifice. Uh, also, historically, the virtue of sacrifice has been, has been specifically emphasized for women. In certain strains of theology that were really influential in my growing up in the church, um, the, Jesus is taught as a model in this passage, especially for women, and maybe mostly for women. Um, and it's kind of like Jesus didn't see equality with God as something to be grasped. And so women shouldn't see equality with men as something to be grasped. It's not our place to fight for that. So it's through learning more about the work of Martin Luther King Jr. and new ways of understanding agape love that helped me to read Philippians 2 differently. I was challenged by the work of theologian Beverly Harrison to think of the passage. She challenged us this passage and the concept um, and docile submission. Rather, Jesus accepted death as a consequence of his unswerving commitment to mutual love. 
And mutuality is such a radical concept that we see um, so rarely and that's so difficult that it challenges the principalities and powers of this world. Um, it challenges the systems and structures that are based on hierarchy and domination and injustice. And a commitment to agape love is a dangerous um, commitment in a world that is ruled by power without love. So the idea of mutuality is based on humans having equal dignity. But the principalities and powers are forces that threaten the dignity of individuals. And I'm directly borrowing from Beverly Harrison and Barbara Andelson, um, and even quoting them some in this. But, um, but Barbara Andelson says, it is not suffering itself that Christians should seek. Rather, we should emulate Jesus' absolute dedication to love, which highlights human dignity. And for me, this is where Martin Luther King Jr. comes in. So Dr. King believed so much in the dignity of people, and of all people, but especially of black people in the US, whose dignity was being threatened daily, that he dedicated his life to restoring their dignity. Um, the, de the dignity of black people was and still is assaulted on a daily basis in this country. Uh, we see it in so many ways with over-policing and over-sentencing and extrajudicial killings by the police um, of black men and women. At the beginning of his career, Dr. King focused on Jim Crow segregation, knowing that separate would and could never be equal. And later in his career, he focused on the dignity of work and empowering workers' unions because he saw that economic and workplace injustices um, that, fa that faced people who looked like him and he wanted to overcome those. So King marched and boycotted and protested on behalf of black Americans. He wasn't a doormat who practiced self-sacrifice for the sake of self-sacrifice. He demonstrated for black dignity to ask white people to engage in mutual love by respecting the dignity of black Americans. And so this is a picture from the sanitation workers' strike on Memphis in March of 1968, which is about a month before Martin Luther King Jr. was shot. Um, and so these uh, men are wearing these signs that say, I am a man, because that is not something that was respected in our country. And Dr. King was actually scheduled to come to Durham on the day that he went to Memphis instead, um, because he wanted to go to Memphis to affirm and to speak out on behalf of these workers. So what was the source of King's confidence in the dignity of his people? Well, there were a few things. Starting from his childhood, he was raised in a, in a home with very courageous parents. And they taught him that he was somebody and that he mattered. Even in the face of racial slurs and parents who shunned him, the parents of his white friends, his mother and father both demonstrated their own sense of dignity and instilled in young Martin that he was somebody. Um, there was a time that him and his father went shoe shopping and the white store owner insisted that he wouldn't serve them unless they came in the back door of the store and uh, received service in the back of the store. And Martin's father left the store with no hesitation, saying that if he couldn't buy shoes in the front of the store, they weren't going to buy any shoes at all. So he had a great example in his parents. He also grew up in the black church and that really impacted his life. Um, and his view of himself as a black person. In the black church, he was able to see 
people who looked like him um, in positions of leadership and authority. Um, and black leadership was front and center, and it was celebrated, and it was affirmed. Then during his doctoral work, um, he studied the philosophy of personalism. And personalism values every individual. Um, every individual human has to be equal in personalism. Uh, people are never allowed to be a means to anything. So there's no utilitarianism in here. You can't use people. Um, people always have to be an end in themselves. And then, of course, there's Genesis 1, which Noah read for us earlier. Um, so the book, the Bible, which guided King's faith, was also affirming that he had dignity and that all people were created equally and in God's image. So this is really critical and significant because what it says is that our dignity is internal or intrinsic to who we are. It's not something that's extrinsically placed. Um, our, our dignity is not based on our productivity. It's not based on our appearance or our class or our race or our sex or our sexuality or our gender expression or anything else under the sun that you can think of that humans might use to discriminate against each other. Our dignity is based solely in that we are made in the image of God. So King saw that damage that segregation was doing to the souls of black people in America as an egregious sin against the Imago Dei, against the image of God and his people. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about an individual personal abuse or systemic inequalities affecting a group of people. Both are sins against the image of God. When you realize this, then you can start to realize that one of the most loving things that you can do for someone who is abusing you is to require that they stop so that they can no longer sin against you and against God in that way. This applies to personal situations and to systemic ones. It applies to physical, sexual, emotional, and political abuse. Sometimes the only power you have in a relationship is to remove yourself from it, either temporarily or permanently, and it can be difficult and courageous and even dangerous to do. This is probably the path that I think is best in individual situations. But when it comes to structural and systemic relationships, we see Dr. King is boldly loving his enemies by offering them the opportunity to be in a right relationship with him and his people. He was offering them an opportunity to practice mutual love by marching and protesting, staging sit-ins. The civil rights movement was turning the other cheek and offering an opportunity for the white ruling class in America to reconcile and repair the relationship between black and white Americans. The turning of the other cheek passage in the gospel warrants its whole sermon, own sermon. Uh, I'll leave that for Chris or someone else to do. Um, but we need to understand that turning the other cheek is not an act of, that, that turning the other cheek is not a way of submitting to violence. Turning the other cheek was an act of creative nonviolent resistance. Um, I recommend a book from the lens that's on the screen. I know it looks like a children's book when you look at the cover, and they could probably use a good graphic designer in the future, um, but it is not a children's book at all. It's pretty dense. Um, and it was really impactful for me, along with many of their other books. They're quite beautiful. So the short version of it is that submitting, that turning the other cheek is not submitting to violence. Um, it's refusing to continue the cycle of violence, whether it's physical or emotional or spiritual or political violence. Turning the other cheek is a way of seeing the abuser with the eyes of love. 
and maintaining that they still bear the image of God and are worthy of participating in a mutually loving relationship. Ultimately, Dr. King sacrificed his life, but it wasn't self-sacrifice for the sake of self-sacrifice. It was not meek submission to an oppressive regime. He died for the cause of mutual love. So when thinking about human dignity and the Imago Dei, we need to realize that racism and sexism and any other ism that we can think of damage our identities. They damage the image of God in us and the way that we were created. Our identities should be grounded in and respected because we are each created in God's image, and that makes us all equal. But these isms, like racism, establish hierarchies based on God-given identities and characteristics. And they tell us that some part of our identity either makes us better or makes us worse than people around us. They make us more worthy or less worthy. They give us reasons for pride or they give us reasons for shame. So these isms distort the image of God in us and our ability to see it fully in ourselves and in others. When it comes to racism, there's specific terms that can be used to describe these distortions. And if you've done some anti-racism work, you might have heard of them before. Um, there's the idea of internalized racial inferiority and internalized racial superiority. I think these terms apply for gender and for other types of isms as well, but we'll focus on race. So internalized racial inferiority is when a person of color sees themselves as less than because of the cultural message that they have internalized. It's just in our water. It's in the air that we breathe. Um, this happens when our entertainment and our news and friends and family portray people of color with stereotypes, perhaps as criminals or as poor. It also happens when people of color are not given affirming and positive examples of people who look like them. When I'm at Duke University, whether I'm in the divinity school or in a science department, most of the images that I see, these classic um, portraits and paintings of the past uh, people that have ruled over that specific department are all white men. I don't see very many people that look like me either. Um, there, uh, sorry, lost my place. Um, it also, um, well, what it also does is it forces um, people of color to not be able to have the imagination for what they could be um, or what God might want them to be. Um, it can limit our imaginations um, and cause us to have a broken view of ourselves. So an example of this comes from Desmond Tutu, and I think we're gonna try to play a clip um, of an interview that he did with um, Krista Tippett from On Being. So Desmond Tutu is a South African Anglican priest. Um, he's a former archbishop or Archbishop Emeritus, and he fought for the dignity of black people under the apartheid regime and in South Africa. And after the regime ended, um, he worked on the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Committee. I think, I mean, that we have very gravely underestimated the damage that apartheid inflicted on all of us. You know, uh, the damage to our psyches, uh, the damage uh, that has made, I've 
often told people a story that, sh I mean, it shocked me. Uh, I, I went to Nigeria when I was working for the World Council of Churches, and I was due to fly to Jos, north in, in, in the northwest, and, and and so I go to Lagos Airport, and I get onto the plane, and the two pilots in the cockpit are both black, and. I, I, I just grew inches, you know. It was fantastic because we had been told that blacks can't do this, right. and we, we take, we have a smooth takeoff, and then we hit the mother and father of turbulence. I mean, we it was it was quite awful, uh, scary. Do you know? I can't believe it, but the first thought that came to my mind was, hey, there's no white men in that cockpit. Are those blacks going to be able to make it? And, well, of course, they obviously made it. Here I am. <laughs> uh, but the thing is, I had not known that I was damaged to the extent of thinking that somehow, actually, what those white people we had kept drumming into us in South Africa about our being inferior, about our being incapable, uh, that it, it had lodged somewhere right. in me. Right. That story just hits me really hard every time I hear it. And as a woman, I know there's ways that I've internalized gender inferiority and that those play out in my life. And that I need to heal the image of God in myself for that, or I need to ask for his healing. Um, so let's talk about internalized racial superiority. Uh, I want to use two examples to help us see this. They're both studies that were done. The first one is rigged monopoly. And if Matt Hoffman's in here, he's heard me tell that story before. But a lot of you weren't here when I told it, so I'm going to tell it again. Um, so in rigged monopoly, they uh, told people you're going to come in and play monopoly with each other. They randomly assigned players that some would be the rich players and some would be the poor players. They didn't know who they were going to be coming in. And it was randomly assigned, so it didn't necessarily have to do with their real life situation. Um, the rich players were given way more money. They were allowed to roll two dice. They like, I don't know, they got out of jail for free. Um, and the poor players started with very little money and they could only roll one die at a time. So of course the rich players did much better and always won. That wasn't that surprising. The surprising thing was that the rich players demonstrated more rudeness and dominant body postures as they started to succeed. They started like slamming their pieces around the board and they ate more of the pretzels that were out for everyone to eat. And then at the end of it, they took credit for their success. They blamed the losses of the poor players on their bad decision-making rather than on the unearned circumstances they both found themselves in. Um, you might say this is more of a case of class superiority. 
But in our country, race and class are closely linked, so I think it's still relevant. There's also a really um, bizarre and controversial study that was run by a school teacher in 1968, which is the year that Dr. King was assassinated. Um, it's sometimes referred to as the brown eye, blue eye study, if you've heard of it. So she, the teacher took a classroom of grade school students who were all white, and she talked to them a little bit about discrimination and racism, um, and then the students were told that for that day, the brown-eyed children were bad. They were not as good as the blue-eyed children. So they had to wear like a collar um, over their shirt to designate that they were brown-eyed so everyone would be able to pick them out quickly. They weren't allowed to drink from the water fountain. They had like use a cup. They had five minutes less at recess than the blue-eyed kids. Um, they got punished for the same behaviors that blue-eyed children were let off the hook for. And they were told that they weren't as good. Um, any faults or mistakes were blamed on them having brown eyes. And blue-eyed children didn't have to wear the collar, they got extra helpings in the lunch line, and they got away with things that the brown-eyed children were punished for. So within that day, blue-eyed kids started making up brown-eyed racial slurs, well not racial, but slurs, calling the kids names about their brown eyes. Um, they started excluding them from playing with them, and the brown-eyed kids continued to perform well, as well as they ever did on their quizzes and um, like little tests that they did in class that day, while the blue-eyed kids started to underperform. Sorry, the brown-eyed kids started to underperform. The next day, the teacher comes in and she reverses the scenario. Um, and the whole situation reversed within minutes. She told them, now, the blue-eyed kids are bad. I was wrong yesterday. Blue-eyed kids aren't as smart, and they're not as good as brown-eyed kids. And immediately, they started seeing the opposite behavior. So how does, how does, so this is, to me, like a pretty clear example of how race is something that we made up. She could make it up and see behavior changes so quickly, um, and seeing this internalized superiority happening in these kids. Um, if you want to watch the video on PBS much later, she brings the kids back when they're like young adults and they watch the videos of themselves acting this way and she continued to do anti-racism work for a very long time. Um, so how does racial superiority play out in real life? Uh, it grants white people assumed credibility, freedom of movement, and unquestioned access. It tells white people that we're better, we're more moral, we're individuals. We're qualified, we're smart, we're pretty. Um, we're the norm, we're the standard. We're leaders, we're safe, we're deserving, we're entitled, we're objective, we're rational, we're justified, and we're innocent. Um, this came from a website called Dismantling Racism. But you can see that this distorts our image of God in ourselves. It distorts the way that we see ourselves and the way that we see our brothers and sisters around us. Um, so before we move on, I just want to take a moment of science, and I have a slide. So in addition to being a campus minister at Duke, I also teach biology classes. Um, I'm trained as a scientist, and uh, one of the things I always try to incorporate in my classes in biology when I can is to really help people understand that race is not biological or genetic. It's something that no one ever did for me when I was an undergrad. Um, but I think it's really essential. The ways that biology gets taught can sometimes increase people's, um, increase people's like unnamed bias 
and uh, wrong ideas that they have about race, untrue ideas. And so I just want to emphasize that race is not biological. It is really something that we made up. Basing race on skin color makes as much sense as basing race on eye color and hair color. And uh, as we talked about in the blue eyes, brown eyes study, that means it makes no sense at all. People from different racial groups have more genetic similarity than, um, than more genetic similarity with people from different racial groups. Sorry, I'm butchering it. People from different racial groups have more similarity to each other than people from within the same racial group. Um, that can take a little bit to process. Skin color is only related to how close a person's ancestors live to the equator and to nothing else that we might try to correlate with it. Um, and I believe that God gave us culture and ethnicity as good gifts and that race is a way that we've made up a construct that erases those gifts. Okay, that's our moment of science for today. Thank you. Um, so we need Jesus and others and a lot of hard work to heal these distortions of the image of God in us. So what I want to suggest for us today is that we need to hold our two passages um, together. We need to hold on to the dignity of the Imago Dei in ourselves and in others, and the passage about Christ coming to lower himself. So those of us that have a heightened sense of ourselves because of these hierarchies that we've made up, we have a lot more lowering to do than those of us who have been a diminished sense of ourselves because of those same constructs that we've made up. Um, they, say, the, they say, Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Um, riches aren't only material. Um, and so for those of us who are privileged by the systems that we find ourselves in, we have a lot more emptying of ourselves to do. On the other hand, you can't empty something that's already emptied. Maybe this is why Jesus said that children and those who are downtrodden are closer to the kingdom of God, right? Blessed are the poor. We should ask whether it's even really appropriate to apply these verses in Philippians 2 to people who are already marginalized and dispossessed. Jesus was coming from being equal with God, so a position of ultimate power and equality with God, and emptying himself of that. So those of us who have a lot of power need to be seeking God and emptying ourselves. So maybe these verses are better applied to those of us who have power instead of those who don't. So I'm going to close by drawing some parallels between the life of Jesus and the work of Dr. King. I don't want to paint a messianic picture of Dr. King. He was flawed in many ways, but I want to encourage us to follow his example in as much as he followed the example of Jesus. So Dr. King, much like Jesus, was a challenger of oppressive systems and people. In spite of what Christmas carols might tell you, Jesus was not that often meek and mild. Jesus challenged those who were oppressive and powerful. He turned over tables. He called people out on their BS. Sometimes we love our enemies by resisting and rebuking them. Dr. King, much like Jesus, was constantly restoring and affirming the dignity of those who were marginalized by society. He was seeing the Imago Dei in them and helping them to see it for themselves. Dr. King affirmed the dignity of black people by marching and protesting and by joining forces with workers' unions. 
Jesus restored the dignity of people with disabilities. Jesus touched people who were sick with leprosy and who were considered unclean. Jesus affirmed the dignity of people who were shunned because of their ethnic and religious background. He did this when he told the story of the Good Samaritan and when he had a meaningful conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well. And he praised the faith of the Canaanite woman who wanted healing for her child. Over and over again, Jesus affirmed women, not only the Samaritan woman and the Canaanite woman, but also the woman with the 12 years of hemorrhaging and the woman who poured expensive perfume over his feet. So I want to close by encouraging us to consider how we're going to honor Martin Luther King Jr.'s legacy this weekend. Please do go do a day of service. Think about joining the book harvest or Jubilee tomorrow. Um, and I hope many of us will participate in that. But I don't think it's enough. I don't think that it truly honors his legacy if we only do works of service that continue with the status quo, serving our political situation as it is. Martin Luther King Jr. dedicated his life to challenging the status quo, to transforming unjust structures, and to changing the hearts of his enemies. He was healing the way that people saw each other and saw themselves and how they related to each other. So I think the best way to honor his legacy is to continue in that work. So I'm gonna close with prayer. Lord, I thank you for this weekend. I pray that you will help us to wrestle with passages of your scripture that trouble us. I also pray that you'll give us the courage to be able to see and name and resist abuses, whether they're to ourselves, which can often be even harder, or to others around us. We pray that you will give us the eyes of Jesus to see others with love, both those who are like us, those who seem far and distant and different to us, and those who are enemies to us. In your name, amen.